Last time we uncovered an amazing kind of order in chaos, which we call the strange attractor. The trajectories for the Lorenz system, chaotic as they are, nevertheless show a very organized pattern when plotted in state space. Remember how it worked. They traced out, though moving chaotically, the delicate wings of a butterfly. Incredible. Well, not quite, as we saw. The butterfly would be a pretty strange one because it would have an infinite number of surfaces to its wings. But that's because the strange attractor, we pointed out, is really an infinite complex of surfaces, even though it looks like just two wings. But those, wing, those surfaces are packed so tightly together, like the sheets of mica, that they just resemble two separate wings, seemingly just two surfaces right there. Fine. That is a great, unexpected, beautiful kind of order in chaos. Still, there's another kind of order in chaos, and that's what I want to focus on in this lecture. We're going to be revealing a new kind of order by using the concept of an iterated map. Before we get into all the details of this, let me try to convey what this is all about by way of analogy. And while we're at it, let me use that analogy to try to contrast iterated maps with two other math ideas that we've been developing so far in the course, which are the ideas of differential equations, which we've had ever since Newton and the clockwork universe, and strange attractors, introduced by Lorenz, as we discussed in the last lecture. By comparing these three all with one analogy, I'm hoping that I can clarify the distinctions among these terms, because, you know, I, I admit it, the jargon is flying thick and fast here. Strange attractors, iterated maps. But you've got to understand these things. They are the bedrock of chaos theory. So, so let's try it with this analogy first. Here's the analogy. These three big ideas, differential equations, iterated maps, and strange attractors, are all kinds of photography. They're sort of three different kinds of photography. And the distinction between them is in the way that they handle time. They take a very different approach to time. For instance, let's suppose we wanted to film a modern dancer. You've seen modern dance, right? It's hard to make, well, I shouldn't say, but for me, it's hard to make sense of these motions. They look a bit random, hard to, maybe I would even say chaotic. So we're going to be watching this modern dancer, which represents, again, in my way of thinking, a chaotic system. How would we capture the motion of this dancer? Let's try thinking about three ways we might capture it. First, simply, we could just take a movie camera and make a movie of the dancer. In that way of recording motion, time flows continuously. Actually, frame by frame, so there is some discreteness, but let's pretend that we had a very tiny, tiny time interval, essentially zero between the frames, so that we can think of time as just moving continuously. All right, that's one way of taking a, 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 one kind of photography that would be natural. Another kind that may be less obvious, but that can be very interesting to look at, is a time-lapse photograph. That is, imagine opening the shutter to capture all of his movements in one image, in a kind of blurry overlay. Here, time is treated differently in the sense that rather than being extended continuously, all times are shown at once, superimposed. Or, a third way, is we could turn off the lights and flash a strobe light on him periodically. Pop, 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 pop. And you've seen dancers under strobe lights because in discos, that's a, a standard thing. 
When someone is dancing, illuminated by a strobe light, the dance has a jerky, psychedelic feeling to it. That way of treating time, thinking of time as existing only at the instance that the strobe light goes off, that kind of time would be discrete as opposed to continuous. All right, now, as we discussed in lectures two and four, a differential equation is like a movie. More precisely, it's the logic behind the movie. It's the, it's the underlying sense, the underlying principles that dictate what frame should logically follow from what in the movie. All right, so that's the, the differential equation description. It lets you see how a system is going to unfold instant by instant and frame by frame, which is a tremendous amount of information. That's the most information you could possibly have about a dynamical system. You record everything. It's all there. But sometimes you don't want all this information. That's the point. Attractors and iterated maps are two ways of boiling down from differential equations to something simpler. A strange attractor is like the second thing that we mentioned, a time-lapse photograph. Right? That's how you could think of a strange attractor. It's like a time-lapse photograph. It's abstract, of course. It's not really a time-lapse photograph of a system. It's an abstraction of that because it's a time-lapse photograph in state space. In Lecture 7, we use this technique to expose the strange attractor in Lorenz's system, which represents the long-term cumulative shape of chaos. It was as if, I mean, where you've seen time-lapse photographs, maybe you've done this experiment yourself as a kid, it was as if we went out on a beautiful starry night with our camera and opened up the shutter to take a picture of the stars overnight. And, And if you've done that, you know what you see. The stars don't stand still. The stars appear to move in perfect circles around the North Star. Well, of course, the stars aren't really moving. It's the Earth that's turning. But pretend with me for a second that the stars were moving in these perfect circles. In in this time-lapse photograph of the heavens, you would see concentric circles as all the different stars move around. And those circles represent the kind of simple, beautiful order that enthralled the ancient Greeks, who were in love with circles. But we didn't see that kind of order when we took a time-lapse photograph of Lorenz's system in state space. Instead of seeing this ancient kind of order of circles, we saw something much more modern and mysterious. Our time-lapse picture showed the trajectories of the Lorenz system as it moved around in its abstract state space. But instead of forming perfect circles or a tangled mess, as you might have expected from a chaotic system, the orbits traced out another kind of beautiful shape, the pair of butterfly wings that I mentioned earlier. That was the strange attractor, the time-lapse photograph of the Lorenz system in state space. Now, in this lecture, we're going to flash a strobe light on chaos, the third way of capturing motion, catching it at discrete moments as it winds around the attractor. That's the new point of view, and that's going to give us iterated mappings. The goal is to find a rule that iterates the, uh, sorry, that animates the chaos from one snapshot to the next. Just as a differential equation gave us frame-by-frame logic, an iterated map sort of jumps forward through many frames all at once and lets us see how a frame far back in time is related to one quite discreetly forward from that. So it's sort of like leapfrogging over all the information contained in the continuous picture in the differential equation. You can sprint through time with an iterated map. By the way, when I say map... I'm using the word here kind of as a verb more than as a noun. 
That is, don't think of a map as like a map of the earth or a map of the United States. I mean map as in to take something and map it onto something else. Think of it as a very active process. Maybe the word mapping would convey that to you more, which sounds a little more active. And that word is used too. People speak of mappings or iterated mappings. You could think of it as a kind of mathematical machine. The mapping takes the condition of the system at a given time, or if you like, think of it as a frame, and then it maps it onto the next frame. Or, or if you want to stick with numbers, you feed a number into this machine, the machine does some mysterious manipulation to it, and then it spits out another number. That's what the map does. Okay, it's a machine that eats numbers and spits numbers out. And the reason it can be iterated, disgusting as this will sound, is that having spit out a number, wouldn't it be nice to feed that number back into the input hole in the machine, let it chew on it some more and spit something else out, and we can keep going around around in circles like that, iterating, eating our own, <laughs> all right, maybe I better stop with that, but you get the idea. That, that an iterated map is something that's going to take numbers and spit out more numbers. Okay, so we're going to see that there is a simple iterated map hiding in the chaos in the Lorenz system. And in effect, it's driving the chaotic motion that we see in this kind of leapfroggy way, that, uh, whereas a differential equation is inching forward instant by instant, the, the uh, iterated map allows us to sprint. In later lectures, we'll see that iterated maps are much more than a quirk of the Lorenz system. They're pivotal to the whole subject of chaos. They underlie and orchestrate the chaos seen in everything from electronics to animal populations. So mastering iterated maps will be very, very helpful to us for the rest of the course. All right, let's now take a, a closer look and see where is this iterated map in Lorenz's system and what does it look like? Well, it comes from looking at a computer simulation of his convection model, or equivalently thinking about the chaotic water wheel that we discussed in the last lecture. We'll watch a variable, which Lorenz called z, and the physical meaning of it really isn't important, just think of it as some variable that changes over time. All right, here's what it looks like. z, as a function of time, produces a typical-looking chaotic time series. It's got some wiggles that are growing, and growing, and then boom, it makes a spike, and then it goes down to smaller wiggles, and then they're growing again, and so on. And there's different numbers of smaller growing wiggles between each of these bigger ones. So it's chaotic in that way. Just moves up and down, but doesn't repeat exactly, as you'd expect for a chaotic system. Here's, though, what we're going to start looking at. Whenever one of these oscillations peaks, whenever it tops out and reaches a maximum, I'm going to record only the peak value which I've marked here for the nth peak, I'm calling it z subscript n, meaning the nth peak in this time series of z. And the question then is, for an iterated map, if we flash a strobe light right at that moment when z tops out, can I use that to predict the next peak, the z n plus 1? Does a peak in one snapshot predict anything about the next peak that follows it? If it does, that's great because it means we can ignore everything that happened in between and leapfrog over that. We can just hop from peak to peak, sprinting through the Lorenz chaos. But, I mean, we've sacrificed a lot of information there, it seems. We've sacrificed all the intervening time points. So can it really be that Zn predicts something about Zn plus 1 just on its own? That's what we have to check. Well, it's not enough to just make a graph for one instance of Zn and Zn plus 1. That would be just one point. 
what I need to do is repeat the process, iterating the map for all the peaks in the record. That is, I would go through my entire record looking at each peak and seeing what does it predict about the next peak. Now, how I'm going to do that is I'll make a graph with two axes, just like in high school algebra. One axis, the x-axis, will be Zn. Where did Zn happen to fall? The other axis, the y-axis, will be Zn plus 1. Where does the successor point fall? And so we want to see, does a pattern emerge in the graph of Zn plus 1 versus Zn? All right, let's try that. Well, I already know the answer, <laughs> so to, because Lorenz discovered this, that if you make such a graph, and Lorenz in his original paper explained why he was motivated to do it, maybe I should just pause, why would you think of doing this thing? I mean, what was the hint? Well, when you look at the Lorenz system, remember, I'll try to just trace it with my fingers, remember that in state space you saw growing spirals, and when they grew enough, they then shot over, the trajectory shot over to the other side, and then grew some more, and then shot back over. And so this was the chaotic motion on the strange attractor, like this. Well, Z measured the height of these growing spirals, and so what Lorenz realized is that when the spiral gets too high, it sort of gets wobbly and gets ready to jump. And so when Z exceeds a certain height, it seems like it's ready to jump, and then it dives in near the middle of the, the wing and starts spiraling out from there. So this led Lorenz to guess that maybe just knowing the maximum Z, that is the height as it's making the loop on the wing, when it reaches a max, maybe that's predictive of the next top of the spiral. And so he just was led to, you know, he's a genius. He thought, I'm going to look at this and see if there's a pattern. So he looked at Zn plus 1 versus Zn. And when he did, he found the graph that I'm showing here, which is that all the dots fall elegantly on a very thin curve that looks sort of like the hat that a witch would wear in one of those old children's scary movies. It, or it's an upside-down V. Maybe I'll just say it that way. All right, there's an upside-down V. Now, so what? All right, so the dots fall on a V curve. Why is that important? Because it's astonishing. It's astonishing that there's a simple pattern like this. This was in a chaotic system. What is this simple curve doing there? Keep in mind, maybe it's a good time to underscore how different chaos is from randomness. Okay, you've heard about randomness a lot if you ever took a probability theory course that it was all about randomness. So is chaos just synonymous with randomness? No, 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 no. <laughs> it's not. Because if this system were random, what would happen? Random means that given the current condition, many possible things could follow with some probability. And so what you would see is that the data points, rather than falling deterministically on this exquisitely thin curve, there would be a cloud of fuzz all over it, okay? Another way to say it is that in a random system, whatever can happen, can happen next with some probability. And so you wouldn't just see one outcome, you would see a, a scatter of outcomes. You'd see a big blob of buckshot of points all over the place. Well, we don't see that. Because in a deterministic system, in contrast to a random system, whatever, only one thing can happen next, all right? It's not the case that whatever can happen can happen next. Only one thing can happen next, given current conditions. And that's what we're seeing here. There's only one outcome, Zn plus 1, for a given Zn. So this system is showing its, its underlying determinism through this single, clean line of the V-curve. This curve is now called the Lorenz map. I should be a little more precise here. 
it's really the graph of the Lorenz map, because remember, a map should be thought of as a machine. This thing that eats a number, Zn, and spits out another number, Zn plus one. But the truth is, in, in practice, and even among professionals, there's a conflation of the two terms. So people speak of the map as being this picture, which is really the graph of the map or the output of the map, and also they use map to refer to the machine itself, the mathematical function that I'm showing here. Okay, whatever, we can deal with that. So the real question is, though, I'm, I'm telling you this is the Lorenz map, but let's see if we can watch it being created before our eyes. I want to show you a computer simulation of how the Lorenz map arises. And so going to that simulation, as uh, so often is the case in these simulations I've been showing you, I'm going to show you two graphs at the same time. One of them will be the creation of the Lorenz map. That'll be the upper panel. The lower panel is going to be a garden variety chaotic time series, Z versus time. But remember what's going on, strobe light. We're creating an iterated map. So a strobe light is going to flash every time Z reaches a peak. Zap, you're going to see a vertical line and the, and the simulation will stop. We then record the value of Z, integrate the differential equation forward till the next peak, and then zap, the light goes off. That's what triggers the strobe light whenever I reach the maximum. And then I'm going to start graphing Zn plus 1 versus Zn. So let me do that now for you in the simulation. All right, so here we are, upper panel, the current value of Z shown horizontally, the vertical axis is showing the next Z, the successor. Down here, we're going to be seeing Z as a function of time. All right, so I have a little button here that says step. And what step means is flash the strobe light, integrate forward for one amount of time, I mean, not a unit of time, but until the next peak is reached when our light goes off. Bam, you see the blue line indicating that the light has gone off. We started at a peak initially, and then we integrated till we reach the next peak, and then zap, the light goes off, and we have a flash. Now notice a blue dot has appeared in the upper graph, and the reason is that the old value of Z, which was about 31, is shown here above the 31, and the new value of Z at the next peak is higher, something like 36 or 35, and so that's what's shown here on the vertical axis. 31 and 35. So that's one dot in the Lorenz map. Actually, we should be a little bit careful here because the Lorenz map only applies to the system once it's on the attractor. And we've learned from the past that there are transient times for systems to relax onto their attractor. They have to be attracted to the attractor after all. So this initial point in reality, is not, there's no reason to expect it to be on the attractor. We're not there yet. We haven't settled down. So there's going to be some garbage at first, transient behavior that's not really natural for the system. It's just an artifact of how we started it. So we're going to let that garbage sort itself out until the system has settled onto the attractor, and then we'll see the Lorenz map as it really is. So let me step forward one more time. Bam, next maximum. Notice another point has occurred. This one has a horizontal value of 36 or 35 because, remember, it is now considered the current Z. This height of 35 is now the current Z, and the next Z is even higher, something like 30. I don't know, what is that? A little closer to 36. So you get the idea. Now I'm just going to step forward one step at a time. Let's keep stepping. The blue dots are being created. 
you, you get the idea. And so, of course, this is tedious to have to keep clicking my mouse. So conveniently, there's another button on the simulation called iterate. And this is going to now start going by fast, okay, as the computer will do the job of clicking for us. So I'm going to iterate for a while. And then after the system is really on the attractor, I'm going to turn off the, um, I'm going to clear the transients, this initial stuff that we consider garbage, not, not really relevant. Okay, here we go with some fast iteration. You see the points starting to fall on the curve. They're trying to trace out that V-shaped witch's hat. And now I've pretty well gotten onto the attractor. I was there long ago. But just to show you that it's going to settle down to this every time, I can clear the transients, and it's recreating it from scratch, and the same shape emerges every time. This is the attractor. Notice that down here, the time series itself, this is what chaos looks like as a time series. You might say to yourself, it doesn't look that chaotic to me. It looks very periodic. I see a lot of, you know, peaks and valleys. But notice that the peaks are not all the same height. Here's one that's very high, followed by one that's lower, higher, 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 and then a lower, and then a higher, and then a lower, and so on. So, and there's, you know, troughs of different sizes. So it's the amplitude that is where the chaos expresses itself. Okay, and clearly the Lorenz map is being formed as we keep going. So just to let it fill itself in, that, that witch's hat is just appearing out of the vacuum, so to speak. It's guaranteed. Okay, now why, having said all this, is the Lorenz map so, so important, so significant? Because it's so simple. It's astonishing that there's a pattern like this lurking in chaos. Also, when I say it's simple, keep in mind that all I did was I have this picture, this V-shaped picture, which says, given the current Z, I can tell you the next Z, significantly far ahead in time. That means that, that the operation of sort of leapfrogging forward through the time series is no harder than just repeatedly pressing the button on a calculator. If I had the Lorenz map programmed into my calculator, I could just say, tell me a Z, press the button, that's the next Z, press the button, and I can fly through the Lorenz system. So specifically, by iterating the Lorenz map using one peak to generate the next, we generate a chaotic string of numbers that captures faithfully all the chaos in the Lorenz system. Well, maybe not all of it because it's missing the chaos in between the peaks, but it's capturing the heart and soul of the chaos. That's the point. The iterated map is lightning fast. It captures with great fidelity what's going on in the Lorenz system, and it's ignoring in-between parts that maybe we don't care about so much. That's what I meant when I said earlier that, that iterated maps are a great boiling down of information in the differential equation. They're simpler, and they allow us to see farther and faster, or at least more easily, just punching a button on a calculator, and they're much less cumbersome than differential equations. On the other hand, I guess I should say, for honesty's sake, that there are some scientists who don't have great respect for iterated maps because they know, and they're right, that the language of nature is differential equations. The true laws of physics and chemistry are written in differential equations. And so by going to iterated maps, we are sacrificing some information. That's true. And the laws of nature are not expressed that way. That's also true. But iterated maps are so valuable in, in their speed and in their compression of information that we've got to take them seriously and got to use them, limitations aside. So in the next few lectures, we'll be studying iterated maps much more deeply, and we're going to be leaving differential equations behind. They've 
They've served us well, but it's now time to let them rest. And also, this is historically what happened. The field of chaos theory developed through Newton with his masterful differential equations, Poincaré and Lorenz, but Lorenz brought in iterated maps too. And since him, and especially in the 70s and 80s, people leapt forward with with iterated maps and and gained great new insight that, that differential equations were just too unwieldy to provide. So this is going to be a strategy that will produce some of the most amazing results. I would argue possibly the most amazing results in the whole subject of chaos theory, the the exploration of iterated maps. Well, what are the larger lessons here besides this curious picture? There are quite a few of them, so I just want to focus on two for now, and I'm going to save the rest for subsequent lectures. The first lesson deepens an ongoing theme in this course, which is that chaos is not the opposite of order. It's a mix of order and randomness in the following senses. Lectures five and six showed that chaos is unpredictable and random-looking in the long run because of the butterfly effect. But it's predictable and orderly in the short run because it obeys deterministic laws. Even in the long run, a kind of order persists, as embodied by the strange attractor, a system that's chaotic nevertheless, once attracted onto a strange attractor, has to stay there, and in that sense, its overall motion is predictable. In a statistical sense, its overall character is limited by the strange attractor, even though its fine details are not. That is, two trajectories on the attractor, representing two essentially indistinguishable ways we could start a system, will stay together for a while, they behave the same way, everything is predictable, but then they veer off, go off onto different parts of the attractor, never really to see each other again, maybe occasionally meeting, but but not for long. And so, if we watch chaos in that sense, we would say that that there's um, short-term predictability, but no long-term predictability, and yet an overall predictability by virtue of being confined to the attractor. Now, in this lecture, we've seen that the medium-term dynamics are orderly too, are structured. By medium-term, I mean not the very shortest-term dynamics governed by the differential equation, but even leaping forward into the medium-term using iterated maps, there's great structure there too. Knowing one peak in Lorenz's Z time series, you can predict the next by consulting the the Lorenz map. All right, so that's the first lesson, all these different kinds of order in chaos. The second lesson is that order in chaos is often due, in fact, always due, to nonlinear relationships. There's a word I haven't used much deliberately, nonlinear big, 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 big word. Nonlinear relationships mean that causes can produce disproportionate effects, not simply proportional like in a linear system, but disproportionate. And the word linear, as it suggests, has something to do with lines. And and we've seen that in the Lorenz system, the iterated map doesn't look like a line. It looks like an upside down V. It looks like that. That's not what a straight line looks like. This thing is bent. It's a witch's hat. Why is that so important? In the next lecture, we'll see why. We'll see why nonlinearity, innocuous as it seems, is tremendously important, perhaps the most important idea in the whole course. If you come away with nothing else, I hope you will come away with an appreciation of the mysteries of nonlinearity. That doesn't maybe make any sense yet, I understand, 
But we've got a long way to go, and by the end, I'm sure you'll take my point. All right. Well, unfortunately, as with Poincaré, Lorenz's great discoveries about chaos fell like the proverbial tree in the forest, making a sound that no one heard. You probably are shocked by that. I mean, this already happened to Poincaré. We understood why his work was ignored and why he himself didn't really carry it on. But now, 70 years have passed. Lorenz has discovered the strange attractor. He's found his iterated map. He's got computers. You'd think people would get it. But they didn't. They still didn't get it. It's interesting in the history of science how these things work. Why the tepid reaction? Well, we can speculate. I don't really know, and this is something for historians of science. But let me give you my own speculations. One thing that's important to remember is that In the 60s, science was still quite specialized, people living securely within their own disciplinary boundaries, not a lot of talking outside of disciplines. And Lorenz was a meteorologist. He published his work in a meteorology journal called the Journal of Atmospheric Sciences. Not a general science journal. It's not a journal that anybody would read except for a meteorologist. There it was, big breakthrough. And of course, with Lorenz's own personality, he wasn't blowing the trumpet. He just did his work and published his paper. Few outsiders would be aware that anything happened, that this thunderbolt had hit. Well, insiders, the meteorologists themselves and the experts in fluid mechanics, they didn't blow any trumpets either. In fact, they didn't even know what to make of it. Lorenz had done something in his work that did not please the community, which is he took the hallowed equations for convection, which everybody studied and devoted a lot of energy to, and he butchered them. On purpose, he butchered these equations, hacking off important terms that weren't important to reveal the essence of chaos by making his results seem artificial, at least to the people that were were wedded to this way of thinking about convection. Or at best, even the most generous interpreters didn't really understand what do these results mean, Ed? I mean, you're showing me chaos, but these equations don't describe anything that I know of. The water wheel analogy was not known yet. So, So what? I mean... You can see why this wouldn't have really taken off. Finally, though, I think here's the real reason. The main reason is that the scientific community was just not ready for chaos. And and to quantify that, let me show you the number of times that Lorenz's paper was cited year by year from the time he published it to the present. Because citations, that's academic currency. That is money. Okay, I mean, that is how successful is your paper. Here's what the citation record looks like. 1963, boom, the thunder. Nothing. Years go by, getting less than 10 citations a year, maybe one. Some years it doesn't get cited at all. I'm showing citations as a function of time. For 10 years, nobody paid attention. Something started to happen around 1975. Now Lorenz is being cited 10 times, 20 times. Now he's up to 100 citations going into the 80s. And now, approaching the present, his paper gets cited close to 200 times a year. Incredible. So in the next lecture, we'll see what finally started this fire. See you next time.